Hey man, thank you, Austin. Um, I am Jeff. I know I still am Jeff, trust me. Uh, I already had people like, who are you? Um, good to see you all this morning. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. I hope you had a good spring break. Uh, time to get those kids back in school. Sorry, kids. Um, but it's time, at least for my kids. Uh, we've been going through a series in Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 is all about faith. We call, we're calling it our By Faith series, but we're going to pause for a couple weeks because we're entering into what's known as Holy Week. Uh, and if you're unfamiliar with that, Holy Week is simply the celebration of Jesus's final week on earth, okay? And it's, it's full of events. So maybe you've never heard of them. You hear these terms like Maundy Thursday. Uh, we'll celebrate that Thursday. Um, uh, then the night Jesus had his last supper, the, the night before his uh, crucifixion on Good Friday, which we will meet in person, I think Austin mentioned this Friday, and then leading up to Sunday Easter where we celebrate Jesus's resurrection. And so we're actually going to pause for a few weeks uh, to recognize uh, these holidays and look at these traditional passages. And I would just encourage you, if you've heard them 50 times, to try to come to them with fresh eyes and fresh hearts this morning and see really the wonder uh, that's there. Uh, and, and we're joining really the church all, all over the world and all throughout history uh, who's celebrating Holy Week, okay? And today we begin really where this series of events all starts, uh, and it's known as Palm Sunday. Uh, but to really understand what's going on, you have to know the, the context of Jesus and his ministry, so if you're unfamiliar with Jesus and the Gospels and just what's been going on, let's, let's catch you up to speed, okay? Uh, Jesus has been kind of doing his active ministry for about three years. And his consistent message is, hey, the kingdom is here. Yes, the kingdom is coming in its fullness, but with my arrival, the kingdom has broken in. God has broken into your darkness after such a long wait. And so repent, which means turn back to God, and rejoice, and we see evidence of Jesus' kingdom coming in what he does, right? And that's where he's uh, healing people, he's raising people from the dead. Those aren't just things where Jesus is just like flexing his divine muscles to, to show off, right? He's, they're evidences of renewal. It's like the wrong is being made right. So when you see a healing in Jesus' ministry, that resonates with you. You go, oh, that's, that's, how it's, that's the way it's supposed to be. So Jesus is saying the kingdom is here. But not just in his works, also in his message. He's saying, hey, it's not just bad people who need God. Good people who trust in themselves and not God's grace alone need to turn to the Lord too, equally as much. Everyone needs to turn to God for salvation. And so for three years, Jesus has been doing that in his ministry, right? And, and gaining followers and so on. And then all of a sudden, kind of near the end of that three years, there's a turning point, And Jesus starts saying things like, hey, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and be killed and, and rise again. And of course, his disciples are like, are you sure about that? <laughs> you know, hey, Jesus, slow down. Remember Peter pulled him aside and he said, hey, bud, I think you're getting a little tired. Why don't we get some rest and get back out there in the game, you know? And Jesus calls him Satan, <laughs> which is never a good thing, if you remember that, right? Peter said, Jesus, you can't go do that. And he said, get behind me, Satan. Um, so he was pretty serious about setting his face towards Jerusalem. And you can understand the disciples' confusion and their kind of disappointment or frustration because they expected a political kingdom. Uh, if, if you're familiar with the context of, of the culture and political situation, the Romans uh, were occupying that area. 
where the Jews lived, and they were oppressing the Jews in many ways, and so they wanted them overthrown, right? They wanted a political king, freedom from Roman oppression. And so he's being declared as king, so we're reaching a boiling point because Caesar would have no rival kings. So as Jesus is being proclaimed as king, this is going to end one of two ways. Either Jesus and his disciples and followers are going to overthrow the Romans, and he's going to take the throne, or he's going to get killed. And Jesus is predicting the latter. And it seems like his mind is made up. And we're going to read here in verse 28. It says, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Actually, in Mark's version, Jesus is literally out in front of his disciples moving towards Jerusalem. Like he's eager to fulfill the scriptures. Okay? Uh, Which is fascinating. And so let's read from uh, Luke's version, chapter 19. 28 through 44, it's on the screen in your worship folder, or uh, there's Bibles in front of you, and I think the page number is on that insert where you can find that passage, okay? Will you follow along with me? And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat, sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away uh, went away and they found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the ground. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is God's word. Uh, so we see a truth here immediately as we've kind of introed this scene that Jesus is not the type of king we expect or the disciples expect because he came to solve a deeper problem than they knew that they had. And often we know that we have. He came uh, to not be the king we want, but the king we most need to forgive us of our sins, to free us from its power, to establish a greater kingdom of eternal life. And so we're going to pick up here, timeline, we're about four days out from Jesus' betrayal and arrest, okay? We're five days out from the cross and about a week out from the resurrection. And as he enters on Palm Sunday, uh, maybe you've heard this before, it's traditionally known as his uh, triumphal entry, but as we read it, it seems the furthest thing from a triumphal entry, okay? Which is kind of ironic, which maybe makes us pause and slow down and think, what, what is going on? Uh, what is God like? Maybe a great question for you to consider as we wade through this passage. So I want to look at three points in your worship folder. The humble and strong king, the brokenhearted king, and a mixed reaction. Um, last week, uh, I, we, we saw the Grammys were on TV. No, I don't normally watch the Grammys. 
but times are hard in COVID and you just got to do what you got to do. And we're watching it and normally people are like rolling up in limos and red carpets and you know, it's really fancy. Um, and because that's what you do to make a statement, right? You, you make a grand entrance. If you watch a big sporting event, they parachute in and there's fireworks and so on. Uh, because the way you arrive and, and what you arrive in says something about you. And I was asking my boys yesterday, we were talking about Palm Sunday, and I said, what kind of car would you drive up? You know, And one of my sons said, a boss Tesla. And I'm like, how do you know either of those words, first of all? You know, I said, what if you had to pick an animal? And they're like, oh, an elephant, you know, a lion, you know, something like that, which, yeah, I would get that. Uh, we landed in Tampa this summer coming home, and Air Force One was right there on the runway. It was just absolutely huge uh, to see that thing because it's the president. He's making a statement. That's how he rolls, right? I mean, you can't imagine him rolling in on a moped. Uh, if he did, what would, what would that communicate about him? And in this day, kings and leaders arrived on war horses to show their power, to show their royalty. Uh, I was watching the cartoon Robin Hood, which like maybe the greatest Disney movie ever, a couple weeks ago with my boys, and King John was being carried on a chariot by all of his soldiers. That's how it happened. Roman kings would, would be in chariots, and religious leaders would arrive often the same way, no differently. Uh, Mark Dever, who's a pastor, wrote a book called It Is Well, and he writes in this book the difference. He kind of contrasts the way Jesus arrives, right? The, the founder, let's say, the Savior, Messiah of, our, of Christianity arriving in our holy city, its holy city, Jerusalem, versus Muhammad, uh, you know, Islam's founder, arriving in Mecca, their holy city. How did the two arrive? And here's what he said. He said, Muhammad rode into Mecca on a war horse surrounded by 400 mounted men and 10,000 foot soldiers. Uh, which I actually looked that up and, and read about that this week. And around the year 630, that's how he rolled in. On a war horse surrounded by 400 mounted men and 10,000 foot soldiers, those who greeted him were absorbed into his movement. Those who resisted him were vanquished, killed, or enslaved. Muhammad conquered Mecca, and he took control as its new religious, political, and military leader. And today in Istanbul, Muhammad's purported sword is proudly on display from that conquest. Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey accompanied by his 12 disciples. He was welcomed and greeted by people waving palm fronds, a traditional sign of peace. And he wept over Jerusalem because the Jews mistook him for an earthly secular king who was to free them from the yoke of Rome, whereas Jesus came to establish a much different heavenly kingdom. Jesus came by invitation and not by force. Quite the contrast, right? Uh, not what we would expect, really the opposite of what we expect, right? In verses 29 to 31, they're on the outskirts of Jerusalem. Jesus tells a couple of, of, of his disciples, yo, go, go to the local, like, rent a horse and get a big royal white steed. That, that's what you expect. And, of course, he says, no, get a colt, a, a, a foal, a, a donkey, a young donkey. In, in the most understated way, this is the moped. Get the moped, okay? That's how we're rolling into Jerusalem today. And that's strange, but there's more going on because Jesus knows the Jews are there and they know their Bibles. They know the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9 that 500 years before, one of the prophets, Zechariah, had said this. He said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Right? 500 years before. Not only that, in 1 Kings 1, Solomon, on the day he was being declared king of Israel, rode in to Jerusalem on a donkey. That's about 800 years before. 
So Jesus, knowing all of that, is actually making a public symbolic statement that he is Israel's true king by riding a donkey into Jerusalem. And because he's not insecure, he knows he's God. True power doesn't have to flaunt itself, right? The president just nods its head and and people jump because he's the president. And Jesus kind of does the same. He arrives in a a a lowly, understated way. And a a big horse would have suggested war, whereas a donkey suggests that he comes in peace. So we see his humility, and and you're going to see his tenderness in this scene, and it is revolutionary in in our perception of God and what we think he's like. That is, I'm going to just keep saying that, like, just meditate on that. What is God like? We see his humility, but we don't only see his humility, you also see his power here if you look closely, because verse 30 says, uh, Luke says, he specifies that this animal is one on which no one had ever yet sat. Which, on one hand, suggests this animal was reserved for sacred use. There's like a purity to this animal. No one had ever sat on it. It was kind of reserved for Jesus in this moment. And yet, on the other hand, this is kind of a scary situation because unbroken animals are not ideal. Right? If you uh, were here two weeks ago and I preached, I mentioned we were getting a puppy. Puppy came home yesterday. Unbroken animals are not ideal. Right? We were up a lot. But to take that a step further, right, imagine riding on an unbroken animal, right? I I rode on a camel three years ago in Israel, and it was the most boring ride of my life because he had been ridden like a million times. He was just looking back at me like, yeah, I know the drill, right? But an unbroken animal would not act that way, right? And in the biggest moment of your life, with so many people watching, would you ride a totally unbroken animal? And if so, what would that be like? It's strange, And yet, in verse 36, Luke says this. It seems insignificant, but it says, as he rode along. Imagine that. It's it's loud. People are yelling. It's chaotic, but the animal's not spooked. Jesus is just trotting along. He just rode along, and most commentators all see a, a small detail of his power in this passage. And this, in his ministry, this is what Jesus does, right? Jesus calms storms. He raises the dead, he casts out demons, he heals sickness, he brings chaos into order with a word or just with a touch, which is what God's been doing from the very beginning. That's the creation account. God takes chaos and he, and he puts it into order. And that's what he does for us too. The Holy Spirit comes, our spiritual, emotional, mental, relational chaos, he puts us back into order. That's what sanctification is. Actually, the The root word of religion in Latin is religio, which means realignment, to put things back in their proper order. This is what God does. This is what Jesus is doing. He gives us his peace. And he can tame and calm our crazy, unbroken hearts, right? He can quiet the lies and self-condemnation and guilt and fear and anxiety and shame, just like he did with storms and animals and demons. And so in his arrival, we see he's humble but he's also full of power and might, right? Like he's the Lord of glory. Don't be deceived, right? And in a couple days when he gets arrested, he will say one word and all of the soldiers will fall to the ground. But he, he moves towards us in our sin. He doesn't show up condemning. He doesn't show up declaring war even when we're in our sin, even when we're set against him. He comes offering peace. Our fickle hearts and our, our sin, right? Our rebellion doesn't phase his movement towards us. And that's good news. 
Because this is a king you can let into your life. This is a king who's gentle and lowly in heart, full of mercy, not harsh. He'll receive us as we are. We see that with his humility, but he won't leave us as we are. We see that in his power. And we need, we need him to be both, right? We need him to be approachable, but powerful, sympathetic, but able, humble, and strong. But the arrival gets more strange if you keep reading. You know, uh, if you've ever watched the Super Bowl parade, when teams win the Super Bowl, they go back to their hometown and they have the big parade and there's floats and drinks and music and dancing and all of that. Did you see the clips of the one this year in Tampa Bay? This year it was on the boats, right? And they were all partying. And usually the camera zooms in on like the MVP mid-party, you know, mid-celebration. And they're, they're smiling, and this year, the camera zoomed in, and sure enough, Tom Brady was smiling for various reasons, and uh, he threw the Super Bowl trophy from one boat to the other. I don't know if you saw that, and thankfully, it was caught uh, appropriately. So, But imagine the camera zooming in you know, on Tom Brady in that moment, and, he, and, and he's crying. You know, and not just a tear, and not just tears of joy, but he's like sobbing. He's inconsolable, uncontrollably sobbing. And that's the picture Luke paints of Jesus here as he comes into Jerusalem mid-party. And this is, this is weird, really. If, imagine reading this for the first time. This is not what I would expect. None of this is what I would expect. He rides on a donkey. Now he's crying. What is going on? Verse 41, as he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Which is jarring because this is actually a different word than, uh, I believe, in the Greek than, than where he wept beside Lazarus' uh, grave or tomb or body. Uh, this word actually means wailing. This is the type of grief that you would be uncomfortable in the presence of. Which, side note, if you're making up a religion and a savior hero, this is like what not to write 101. Like why would, if you're really trying to pull one over on people and get them to believe and follow this leader, why would you write that? Which, by the way, so often in the, in the scriptures and in the gospel accounts, the not what you would expect or how you would draw it up nature of it actually furthers its credibility. Because why else would you put that the women were the first ones at the tomb and so on when their testimony didn't even hold up in court, right? Well, there's many examples of that, and that, that struck me this week. So the one who's being celebrated is becoming, unra he's coming unraveled. And what does this show us? Well, first, it shows us God weeps. Right, there's so many images of God only in, in victory and triumph. And, and yet here, Jesus, his triumph is in tears of loves and eventually a broken body. I feel like right there we could say amen and just marvel at that the rest of the day. Remember, Jesus is, Colossians 1 says, he's the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1 says he's the exact imprint of God's nature. So if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. This is what he's like. And this tells me this is a God you can approach. This is a God who's relatable. <laughs> this is a God you can find comfort in, one who sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. In other words, he, he, he gets it. Dane Ortland, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, which many of us have been reading, he said this, he knows what it is to be thirsty, hungry, despised, rejected, scorned, shamed, embarrassed, abandoned, misunderstood, falsely accused, suffocated, tortured, killed. He knows what it is to be lonely. His friends abandoned him when he needed them most. Had he lived today, every last Twitter follower and Facebook friend would have unfriended him when he turned 33. He who will never unfriend us. 
This is a God who knows what a broken heart feels like, who knows grief, who knows loss. God is not abstract out there, high, above, apart from our suffering, but he knows. He has wounds. He has tears. And so we see his tender heart. God weeps, but also notice He's not weeping, and his heart isn't broken for what he's about to go through in Jerusalem. He is weeping for those who don't know him. His heart is broken for those who are against him. He's anguished over the anguish of others. And you might say, oh, well, it's easy to, you know, Jesus wept beside his friend Lazarus, but everybody weeps beside their friend who's died. But this is a city who's rejected him and who in a few days will be crying out, crucify him, and yet Jesus doesn't gloat and say, yeah, you're going to get what you deserve, like many of us would, would, like I would. Yet he weeps, and he says, oh, that you would know the things that make for peace. By rejecting Jesus, he's saying, hey, left to yourselves, it's destruction, spiritually and Physically, because 40 years later, the Romans would come and destroy Jerusalem. Verse 44, he says, not one stone is going to be left on another. And yet, knowing all of that and knowing they're set against him, God doesn't rejoice at the downfall of his enemies, but he desires that none should perish. Which contrasts greatly with how Christians, professing Christians, often respond to the downfall of their enemies in rejoicing and gloating, and yet Jesus is wailing, and he says, oh, Jerusalem, the city that rejects the prophets sent to them, how often I would have gathered you under my wings, and yet you refuse. The city is bright and and glimmering, and it, it looks so full of life and peace on the outside, and Jesus is saying it's dead inside. And Jesus doesn't long for revenge, but he weeps. Is this how you view God? Do you view him with his fist raised, eager to condemn, eager to judge, eager to smash, right? Eager to settle the score. Or do you picture him with, with full of compassion, with tears running down his face, longing for you to know him as king, that you might know life and peace and hope? How do you view God? And secondly, I think this scene is informative, And what it's saying is that our best ministry will be done with tears and a heart of mercy and compassion, not by arrogant lecturing and and gaining political power. You know, and that example, I mean, one example of our best ministry being done in tears, not on the political, you know, spectrum, but just think of Job and his friends. When his life completely fell apart, what did his friends do? His friends came and sat with him quietly and wept with him for seven days and didn't say a word. And they were knocking it out of the park. (laughs) Good ministry. And then they lectured him for 35 chapters. (laughs) And it was like, what not to do, right? But Jesus, think about that. He didn't come swinging a sword. He didn't come looking simply to gain earthly political power to establish his kingdom. Actually, when his disciples ran alongside him and grabbed him by the arm and said, hey, is now the time we're going to set up the kingdom and we're going to, you know, overthrow this deal and we're going to set up what's right and put you on the throne? He said, hey, go make disciples. He gave the great commission. And that's been true throughout history when the church has had its greatest impact. Scott Sauls, a PCA pastor in Nashville, wrote a book called uh, Jesus Outside the Lines. And he said this, Christianity always flourishes most as a life-giving minority, not as a powerful majority. 
It is through subversive countercultural acts of love, justice, and service for the common good that Christianity has always gained the most ground. I mean, actually, when people tried to make Jesus king, he avoided it. He, he withdrew. How does that make us reevaluate how our greatest ministry will be done? Right? And where might we be idolatrously resorting to worldly means to bring about the kingdom? Does our ministry look like his? And just this past week, Tim Keller's wife, another PCA pastor in New York, uh, he, his wife, Kathy Keller, wrote an article this week, and in it she said this, When and where did we get permission to abandon the Great Commission in order to invest our energy, time, and money to instead gain political power? Just something to think about. So a lot to take in on, on this scene, on this passage. Does, does, first, does this make you lean in and, and wonder at what God is like? And is anyone more approachable than Jesus? And secondly, if, if we see Jesus weep over us this way, over his enemies this way, who is on our heart that way? Because Jesus is our Savior, but he's also our example. And so in a way, he's saying, hey, follow me into Jerusalem. And it's going to hurt, and you're going to suffer, and there's going to be grief as you go seek to be an instrument of peace to others. But guess what? The hope is there is resurrection. Resurrection's coming. That's the hope of this entire week. And so how do people react to this? Well, to, to appreciate the scene, you really got to know what the time is like in Jerusalem. Back in the good old days, there was a show called College Game Day. You all remember that? I mean, there's still college game day on Saturdays, but used to, they were, they were set up at a college on, on, for college football on Saturdays, and there's all these people, and a bus would arrive, all the fans, and the team would get off the bus, and they could barely fit through the crowd. People are screaming and yelling. There's like anticipation and expectation and celebration, and that is how I picture Jerusalem during this time of year, because during this time, uh, thousands of pilgrims have come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Uh, Passover is when Israel was set free from Egyptian slavery all those years ago. If you've never heard that word Passover, what is that? Maybe you've heard of the ten plagues that happened, right, in Egypt, and finally God's people got let go. Every year they would celebrate that uh, on the Passover, and people would flock to Jerusalem to celebrate it, and so the city would swell two to three times its normal size. So, boom, Jerusalem's already packed. And there's a lot going on, but also word of Jesus has spread. Word of Jesus, the Messiah, is getting around, and they know he's headed to Jerusalem. And so the city is full of messianic expectation. They're like, hey, the king is coming, right? He's going to make things right. And on top of that, the, the city's on edge because the Roman authorities knew that Jesus was coming, and they don't want any rival kings, so there's more, you know, guards and security. One commentator said this. He said, the Passover crowds in Jerusalem were like a powder keg ready for a spark. So there's this mixture of joyful expectation and just tension. As Jesus comes down the Mount of Olives, which is right outside of the city of old Jerusalem with the, with the walls around it, and he's coming down, and there's two different reactions to when he comes. And verses 36 and 37 says the first one is praise. People spread cloaks on the ground. They get these palm branches. They wave them. Matthew says they also lay the palm branches out. They almost make like a royal red carpet, so to speak. And they see him coming. And Luke says they rejoice and praise God with a loud voice. And they start quoting, again, they know their scriptures, Psalm 118. 
right, which predicted was a messianic psalm of him coming. It says, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And so although they may not fully understand exactly what Jesus came to do and the exact nature of his triumph and kingdom and the cross and all that, they still have the right response. The king had come to bring peace and to save. There's one response. And then there is a reaction to that reaction, right? They react to Jesus, and these other people react to their reaction. In verse 39, some Pharisees, which were a religious group who opposed him, they tell Jesus, hey, tell them to shut up. Because <laughs> they're praising him. They're worshiping him. They're quoting the psalm. They're singing. They're exciting, excited. And they tell Jesus, rebuke your disciples because they didn't want him hailed as Messiah. Also, A, B, they didn't want to attract the attention of the Roman authorities because that would be bad news. And so they say, this reaction is too much. And this always happens when the gospel is preached. Just read the book of Acts or read Jesus's ministry. There's one reaction of conviction and repentance and your heart softens and you praise God. And then there's another reaction of opposition and hostility and apathy. You see that many times in Jesus' ministry, right? He would preach the kingdom and some would follow him and some would say, uh, yeah, we're out. Or some would get angry. Charles Spurgeon famously said, the same sun which melts wax hardens clay. And the same gospel which melts some persons to repentance hardens others in their sins. Jesus responds to this complaint and he says, hey, not only is their praise the right response, it's inevitable. Not only are they right, but it's going to happen one way or the other. Because he says if they were silent, guess what? The stones would start crying out. Which, you know, he may have been talking about like the rocky terrain of, of Israel and so on. But also, right there on the Mount of Olives outside of Jerusalem is a cemetery. A really, really old cemetery. And there's, it's just rocky. The tombs are above the ground and there are literal rocks everywhere. People take the rocks and they put them on top of the tombs. I remember walking through there and stuff. And so a lot of people say, uh, you know, that's in plain view when Jesus is saying this. So maybe Jesus is even saying, you know, the graves would start crying out and praising me if, if they didn't. Either way, he's saying nothing can stop the praise that comes with my arrival. And nothing can stop the joy of my people at my coming. The gates of hell can't prevail against my coming in my kingdom. Your sin can't prevail against it. So there's two reactions, but also you kind of see that there's no neutrality with Jesus either, right? We mentioned that sometimes. Maybe you've heard it before where Jesus said, hey, if you're not for me, you're against me. And we know that indifference is hostility. And it's even worse than hate, some argue, because if you hate something, at least your heart's bound up in it. If you're indifferent, I mean, you're totally checked out. Right, if your wife says, how do I look, and you shrug, tell me, is indifference neutral, men? <laughs> uh, no, wrong answer, right? I mean, I don't know, you look fine, I guess. What? <laughs> indifference isn't, isn't neutral. And if you shrug at Jesus, what's your reaction, right, when he shows up? Is it, I mean, whatever, I don't know. <laughs> Jesus says, if you shrug at me, you don't know me. Because the, the right response to your creator and your redeemer and the king of kings would be praise. It would be worship. And so picture this. Jesus comes down off a graveyard 
and he passes through the Kidron Valley. There's a valley where you go off the Mount of Olives, through this little valley, right into Jerusalem. And the Kidron Valley is where all the blood from the temple sacrifices would flow down there. And so Jesus walks through, passes right through death into the cursing of the cross. Do you see the symbolism? Where the blood flowed, symbolizing as he goes into Jerusalem, his blood would flow once and for all so that we might know the things that make for peace. So that we might be forgiven and made righteous and made children and reconciled to God and given new hearts and given eternal life. And so as we look at this passage, there's so much comfort in it, right? Here's the the brave, strong, humble, weeping king. It's like the diamond of who God is. We see all these facets of his heart for us. Coming, he arrives to lay down his life. His heart is breaking for his people. You can see the heart of the Father in the face of Jesus. So much comfort. And at the same time, you can't avoid the confrontational nature of this passage. Because it seems, Luke seems to almost be pushing, implying this question, like, which will you know him as? Will you know him as the the, the humble king arriving on the donkey offering peace? Or will you know him later as the king who returns to set up his kingdom once and for all, bringing justice? Right? Philippians 2 says, Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father in heaven and on earth and, and under the earth. It's not a matter of if, but when. So which will you know him as? Jesus told them, right, that the, the Romans uh, sacking Jerusalem was just a foreshadowing of a greater judgment to come. And he said, you know, he said the Jews didn't know the time of their visitation. And every week when we gather, the Holy Spirit visits us. Every week we gather, we hear the word, we hear the gospel. There is a a visitation of God. In Revelation, there's this picture where Jesus walks amongst the candlesticks. He walks amongst, which represent the churches. He kind of comes and he he walks amongst the, the rows of our church. And he says, oh, that you would know the things that make for peace. By grace, through faith, he's made a way for us to know peace. We need a king. And we say it often here. We're all crowning something. If it's not Jesus, you're crowning something, right? You're looking to something to bring you peace and hope and life. And guess what? That thing is the thing that you serve. And whatever you look to in that way and you say, because of that, that right there, that's why my life has meaning and peace. Well, guess what? That thing has control over you. It has authority over you. And if you ever let it down or it lets you down, you're going to be crushed. But Jesus says, I will never let you down. Jesus is the only king who says, you live for me because I died for you. And the only way we can know peace, Luke is saying, is if we put ourselves under the Prince of Peace. So what's your reaction? I think that's what Palm Sunday brings us to, this whole scene. Is it, is it shrug? Is it like golf clap, praise? Eh. Or is it worship? And if you do have a hard heart, guess what? There's good news because Ezekiel, the prophet, said our hearts are like stones because of sin, but the Holy Spirit can give them a voice. The Holy Spirit can bring our rocky hearts to life and, and let them sing. And so let's pray for that. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. And whether this is the first time or the 25th time we've looked at this passage, God, I pray that by just slowing down for a few minutes this morning and walking through your 
inspired word that you've met us somewhere in our hearts. There's so many things in this passage for us to consider, but maybe we just settle in on one thing that you're, you're pressing in on our hearts. Father, I pray that you would bring us peace and in light of that, that we would be peacemakers. I pray that we would see you as the weeping, brokenhearted king and that we might be people who weep, who have broken hearts for the sake of others, Lord. Humble us. And thank you also that you're a strong king, that the cross was your triumph chariot and yet at the same time it didn't have the final word because you defeated death and sin and hell so we can have hope. I think for me, often at the end of, of this type of scene, I'm, I'm left speechless in the mystery of who you are. So Lord, thank you for your mercy. Bless us now. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Uh, thank you for being here. Don't forget, there's a lot going on this Holy Week. Monday, Thursday, we won't meet in person, but there's a worship guide to do at home, I believe on the app and, and online. Good Friday, we will be here. So come Good Friday and join us as we move up to Easter. And as we go, uh, marveling at the heart of our Lord, uh, receive this benediction if your faith is in Jesus. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in God's peace.